All right, we're going to be in 1 John 4, 7 through 10. That's the passage we're going to be studying today as we continue in our Advent series. I encourage you to flip over there and take a look at it along with me as I read it. We'll read it, pray, and then jump in. So it says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let's pray. Father, oh, how desperately we needed this from You. It's so easy for us to to get sidetracked, to to feel discouraged. Well, just to dismiss how, how big a thing you've done. By your word today, by, your, by the work of your spirit, just show us, teach us, help us to see how great your love really is, how, how amazing, how powerful it really is. Help us to be a people who love like that. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, here we are, our Advent series this year. As it's already been mentioned, we've, we've highlighted hope, we've highlighted peace, we've highlighted joy, we've focused on each of these three things and how in Jesus' coming, in his incarnation, he brought those with him. He made them possible for us. He, he gave them to us, if you will, and they came with him. And I don't know if it's already been mentioned, but I think it's clear in the passage that today's focus, today's view, the thing that we're highlighting is love, God's love for us. And I think in this passage, as we've read it, there's both a a beautiful and a powerful promise. It's, it's, It's probably more foundational than we often even recognize. But because Jesus has come, this is what I think it is. This is the summary of what I think he's saying and, and showing us and what we'll break out or work in the rest of this, this, this morning. Because Jesus has come, God's people can daily live with this assurance. We are loved by God. We can live daily with this assurance. We are loved by God. Because God has come, because Jesus It has been sent to us because God sent his one and only son. We don't have to question whether God loves us ever again anymore. We don't have to determine, does God love us? Is he feeling good about us or is he loving us based on how things are going in our life? If if you're like most people, and maybe maybe you're not, but, but several of us, I would imagine, are, we tend to... Think about how God is thinking of us or looking at us or feeling it about us based on what's happening in our life. When things are going our way, when things are happening in a way that we feel good about them, we think, oh, God loves me. It's great that I'm loved by God. And then all of a sudden things begin to go wrong or seemingly go against us or not working out as we had planned. We often wonder how we get back on his good side. So we start showing up at church more, start participating in community group more, doing those things that we think will appease him. I mean, this is really the, the foundation of idol worship, right? When you think about it, that the idea that we're going to sacrifice something to the gods to appease them. That's, that's the worship of false gods. And, and in, 
intrinsically woven into our old nature is this, this thought that we have to earn love. That we have to do something to stay on the good side of the God who says He loves. But God has sent His Son. And because He has, because Jesus has come, we never have to question this again. Our understanding of His love for us is no longer tied to the circumstances of our day. No, no, no longer determined based on what's happening around us. Sending His Son wasn't just a grand gesture, though. It wasn't just some, some big thing. It was a resolute act that once and for all settles it. You are loved by God in Christ. Period. There is no but or if. His love is made evident in this. Jesus has come. Period. Now I think it's pretty clear as we read through this. I think it's easy to see that that John is writing this with the intent of calling Christians to love one another the way God has loved them. To, to, to imitate His love by loving one another with that love. That seems to be that that's His primary purpose as, as you read through this. Because over and over He's instructing us to do this same thing. But, but He doesn't do it without helping us see the nature of God's love. Or, or the source of this love. Or, or, or what really defines this love. And so before we look at, the, look at what we're supposed to do in light of it, let's look at this. Let's look at this love. Let's understand this love so that as we begin to express it, we don't just express more of our natural love, but that we can really love with His love. The first thing I think we see in verse 7, God is love's source. It, it, love comes from God, is what, he, uh, is what he says. The, the, the world is filled with poor imitations of love. Over and over you look, you look around, you can see all of these weak and poor, pitiful imitations of this love. For example, I love ice cream. I love ice cream. But what that really means is, I desire ice cream. I want to consume ice cream. I don't just love the idea of it. Like, ice cream is absolutely no good sitting in a freezer at the grocery store, right? That's absolutely worthless to anyone to have ice cream there. Ice cream is only good if I get to eat it. I don't even really care if you're eating it. It's still not good if you're eating it. I love ice cream. And everybody knows what that means is I desire Ice cream. Now, I know this is a silly little example, and I'm stretching it out just a little bit, really to try to prove a bigger point. Because the reality is, the way we often express our love is a desire, is a lust, is a passion for something, is the same way we often express our love, even in relationship. I can't tell you the number of people I sit down across from in a, in a mediating situation that say that they love one another and yet their actions are given to con- consumption, desiring something from the person, demanding them to be something for them rather than loving them in the way that God has called us to love one another. You see it in television, you see it in, 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 our, in our books, in our stories, 
when we love something, it's often really just an expression of our great desire to have something. That's a poor imitation of what God has shown us what love is. The, the, the world's poor imitations are substitutes or are, are often uh, love. Uh, let, me, let me say it differently. It's, it's fear dressed up in love. And what I mean by that is, oh, well, we, we, we tell little white lies. In fact, we've come up with a little name for them so that we don't have to feel bad about them because they're really lies. We tell little white lies to avoid conf- confrontation because well, we love the person. When what that really means is we're fearful of losing something. We're afraid that we'll push them away if we speak truth, even if it's in love. We're afraid that we might hurt, that it might cause us trouble. See, in both these instances, this is self-focus. This is about self-protection. This is about getting what we desire, keeping hold of and controlling what we want. Um, imagine, the, imagine the relationship. Just imagine the relationship built on lies or built on little white lies that can't handle truth expressed in love. Uh, imagine that relationship in contrast to the relationship that is established in truth and love. There's good reason to fear losing the one who, who, that's established on lies. Because it's weak, it's feeble, it's got no strength, it's got no ability to endure. No wonder we're afraid to lose these things. But the one established in love, the one relationship established in love, the one that we have the clearest example of, is eternal. The, the one established in truth and love, the, the one that we have the clearest example of, the one that God is showing us here that through his apostle John is, is demonstrating for us here, that relationship is eternal and nothing can change it. Nothing can take it from us. In fact, as difficult as it, as it is for us to hear our, the, the truth about who we are, that's what makes this relationship so secure is that God still loves This love that John refers to, this love that God has shown, that that originates with God, that it finds its source in Him. It's a love we all love to be, long to be loved with. It's a love that we all want, that we all hunger, that we all desire. And He's shown us where to find it. He's shown us where to get it. He's shown us the very source of it. We can go to the source. We don't have to accept poor imitations or weak substitutes. This love comes from God. He is its source. This is not something we can grow into and accomplish on our own. It is divine in its origin. If not for God loving this way, if not for God loving in in this way, expression of love, the world would know nothing of it. We would be stuck with feeble, weak, pitiful, poor, powerless imitations. Beloved, 
Let us love one another. For love is from God. It's not a maybe it'll come. It has come. It's a present tense reality. Love is now. It's here. Where are we running to find it? Where are we looking to see it satisfied? To see this desire satisfied? God is its source. There is no other love in this life that will satisfy you like the love of God. And there is no other love in this world that will enable you to love like God loves. Everything else is empty. Everything else is just an imitation. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to settle. We have been loved. God is love's source. God's nature defines love. Look at verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's nature defines love. Love. Now, this isn't the first time that in, in this letter that John has described God's nature by highlighting some aspect for us so that we can understand it. In John 1, 5, he writes that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. There's this picture of God's purity, of his perfection. There's no evil in him. There's nothing insidious or hurtful or harmful. He is pure and perfect. He is holy and righteous. And here, in con- not, not in contrast, but in kind... He says that God is love. We have to be careful here, though. We have to be careful because if we start this the wrong way, if we, if, if we input or import the wrong idea here, we will misunderstand what he is saying. See, lo- love, as we see it and define it in the world's terms, does not define God. So we, we, we can't start with love is God. We, we can't start with the idea that our idea, our perspective, our understanding, the world's understanding of what love is, is God. That it explains Him. If we do that, think of the danger. Think of the way that we would input our poor, pitiful, weak, impotent uh, uh, substitutes and imitations onto Him. A God who only loves because we're worthy of love. Have you ever done that? You ever felt that? You ever struggled with the idea that, oh man, things are going bad. I've got to do something to get back on God's good side. That's exactly what that is. It's a, it's a, it's a impress or or a projecting of a world's view of love on God. It's, it's wrong. God is not the love of this world. God is love. It, God defines love. His nature is the definition of love. Love is not God. Our view and understanding of love, if, if, if we don't do this right, if we don't look at this carefully, well, we're going to be all screwed up. Not only about what love is, but about who God is. But the world prizes love, right? Like They promote love. Love, not hate. When you get into their definitions of it, it demands acceptance and affirmation of, of things that are opposed to God. It demands that we treat one another in ways and and act towards one another in ways that don't display the righteousness of God, the light that God is. It encourages us to accept imitations. See, it doesn't just distort our view of, of what love is. It distorts our view of God. 
John does, want, he does not want us to come with our understanding or the world's perspective or the world's view of love and project that onto God. He wants us to understand that God and his nature define love. If we are going to know love, we must know God. God is love. Therefore, to know love, we must know God. And if, if, if we know God, then we know this love. To learn and understand love more fully, more completely, we must know the God who loves. To be able to define love in biblical terms, in a biblical and right understanding, we can't do it from our own simple perspectives. We must know who God has shown himself to be. This is the love that God is. His righteous, holy nature is love. They aren't in contrast to one another. They don't compete with one another. They aren't in competition with one another. God is love. His very nature is love. In all of His perfections, in all of His presentation of His own glory, in all of the call for us to recognize His glory, it is love. We're going to define the nature of it more fully in just a little bit, but we have to recognize We don't get to define love because the nature of God has made it known for us. We have to come from his perspective. Because God is love, everything he does is loving. It is always an act of love. It is always an expression of love. Every act of kindness, every consequence that he brings his children through as we wrestle with our sin... And every judgment is marked by his love. And we tend to compartmentalize these two ideas of of love and God's wrath. We, We tend to separate them. God's holiness that brought wrath, God's righteousness, his purity that brought wrath, and his love that satisfies it. I think that's a misunderstanding. Because if God hadn't loved, I don't think there would be any wrath. Just consider it. If God creates the world in love, presents it to, uh, uh, puts it all together, demonstrating his power and his presence and, and showing his character in it, right? The Bible tells us that his eternal attributes have been made evident in his creation. That the creation pours forth his praise because it can't help but bring him glory. And then the pinnacle of his creation, the man and the woman, with whom, in whom he creates in his image. He puts them in this beautiful garden, provides for all of their needs, allows them, encourages them to enjoy, enjoy the abundance of everything. Enjoy it all. There's only one tree, only one thing in all of this creation that I would say you can't have. And it's this one tree. And they rebel. If he hadn't loved, if God wasn't love, if God's nature wasn't marked by love for his own glory and for the good of his people, what would have his reaction been? What's the the reaction of a people who don't love? They don't care. Dismissal. Forget about it. Or an immediate 
vengeance. We know God's wrath, and we experience God's wrath because God is love. Now, I know, I, I know that, that those seem, how can they live together? How can they exist in the same place? Look at the life of Jesus. But as parents, I know not all of you have children yet, but you've at least been children. Maybe you've experienced this from your own parents. Parents, at one, in the same moment, angry with their children, but yet loving them because they're so concerned. They're so upset about injustice and so worried for their good. You see it happen all the time in, in all kinds of different circumstances. A, a parent loses a kid in the grocery store. And they finally find them. What were you thinking? Running off from me. Don't you know? Now, I'm, I'm sure you probably don't do those things to your kids. or Your parents maybe didn't do them to you. But pay attention. If, if we can have this complexity of thought and this, imagine how much more can reside within God. His wrath is an extension or an expression, if you will, of his great love, first for his glory and also for his people. But God's love tempers his wrath. Rather than blind rage, rather than just losing it and going off and and destroying everything because Adam and Eve rebelled, his wrath is tempered by his love. He, he does, he, he, in his love, he is able to purposefully, intentionally, willfully stand in opposition to, to injustice and oppression, to, to sin and evil. And in so doing, still move for, for the good of his people and the glory of his name. This is not blind rage. It's not a dismissal of of his nature so that he can just express his wrath. God's love tempers his wrath. And in fact, the same love that motivated his wrath and tempers his wrath is the same love that satisfies his wrath. Why is it that Jesus came? Because God loves Everything about God is marked by love. There is never an instance, never an action, never an expression that is not, 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 not connected, not in relationship, not in some way affected by this attribute of love. God is love. Because he is. He loves the unlovable. God doesn't love you because you're lovable. God doesn't love you because you deserve it. God doesn't love you because you've gotten on his good side and earned it. God doesn't love you because he checked his list twice and saw that you were good this year. God loves you because God is love. God loves you because it's his character. He loves you because of who he is, not what we deserve. His love loves the unlovable. He can't 
help but love because that is who he is. In terms of our Advent series, just consider this for just a moment. In terms of our Advent series, this is, is important. Every aspect, every aspect, every focus that we've had to this point, peace, hope, joy, these are things we get to experience. They are, they are outward things that, that, that he changes for us. These are, these are things that he accomplishes us uh, on our behalf. He accomplishes a, a hope for us. He, he makes hope available to us in Christ. He gives us peace. In fact, the, the scripture says that he doesn't just give us peace, but Jesus is our peace. That in him we find peace with God and we find peace with man. And in Christ's coming, we have every reason to rejoice. But when we come to love, we aren't just receiving something God has accomplished for us. We are receiving God. We are receiving the expression of His nature. You are loved by the pure, perfect, righteous, holy God. He loves you. Not because you've done something to deserve it but because he is love. He is love. So God's the source of love. God is the source of love. God is is love. His nature defines this love. And then we get to look and get a close look at what this love looks like. And and, and he shows us, he, he proves us this love. God's love is proven in Jesus. Verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that was made known among us, that was presented publicly, openly, is no longer hidden. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world. God has proven His love once and for all. We never have to question it. We never have to wonder if it's true. God sent Jesus. God the Father sent God the Son. In so doing, He proved His love once and for all. We don't have to question it. He made his love known. He brought it out in the open so that we could actually experience it. If he never had, if he hadn't done this, this wouldn't mean that God isn't love. It just means that we wouldn't be getting to experience it. It wouldn't be made manifest. We wouldn't know it. God would still love within the Trinitarian Godhead. He would love the, the, the Father would love the Son. The Son would love the Father. They both love the Spirit. And the Spirit would love them both perfectly, without fail. And yet, His desire was for us to know it. For us to be able to experience it. For us to become the object of it. So He sent His Son. And because He has... We can live in this assurance. But, but, but in loving us so openly, he doesn't, just, he doesn't just let us know he loves us. He lets us see the nature of his love. He lets us see what his love is really like. He gives us some perspective of what this love is. So we no longer have to accept weak, pitiful, powerless imitations and, and poor substitutes. We, we can now know what this love looks like so that we can understand not just how we have received this love, or when we have received this love, but that we can also express this love. And we see that in the sending of His Son. 
I'm, I'm going to give you several little points here, several, several sub-points that, that I think would define his love, and they stand across the Scripture over and over as we see his love expressed. I think these things would prove uh, in every one of these passages. But I think here we see that God's love for us is proactive. Verse 10. In this, the, I'm sorry, it, in, in this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. God's the initiator. He's the one that starts it. He's the one that puts it on. He's the one that, that, that it's the origin from. If there's love in the world, it's because he's brought it. Love flows out from him. God the Father sent God the Son. He is the one that proactively acts in love. Not because we loved him first. Not because we did something. Not because we had appeased him. We, we sacrificed the right number of, of virgins. Or we, or we did the right number of Hail Marys. Or we did whatever the case may be. God loved us. Not that we loved him. Not because we loved him. God's love for us is proactive. He does not wait for you to become worthy. If he waited for us to become worthy, we'd never get there. His love is proactive. He is the primary lover. He is the one who does this first. God's love for us is productive. It's active and it's effective. It actually accomplishes something. Look at verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So just, just let me focus on two of those phrases. God sent his only son. There's activity there. There's production. There's, there's movement. God sent so that we might live. Because there, there, there's this desire that the sending isn't just, in, uh, it's not just a theory. It's not just some just something he did. It's not just some grand gesture that makes people feel good about it. It actually accomplishes something. We live in him and through him. In this love, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. In verse 10, sent his son, activity, production, to be the propitiation of our sins. Again, to accomplish something, to be the propitiation of our sins, to be the atoning sacrifice. To be the satisfaction of his wrath. The, the wrath that was motivated by his love is now satisfied in his love. His love is actually productive. This is, this is a crazy, sad illustration. It's the one that comes to mind every time this comes up. We're, we're so quick just to say, I love you. I love you. I'll never forget. Yeah, I could tell this story. Sitting in this room right there in that fellowship hall watching this married couple and their marriage disintegrate right before my eyes. Literally gone. I don't think anyone here even knows them. It was people that I was trying to evangelize and bring into the church and it never, it ended bad. I'm watching this as the wife sits there and says, I'm leaving. I don't want you to think I don't love you. I love you so much, but I'm leaving. And he is bawling. I mean, this dude is literally broken in two. I looked at her. I said, you got to quit Stop. You, you, you got to quit saying that. You do not love him. I, I've been through their mess. I know what was going on in their marriage. 
she, it doesn't matter. I, I, I knew. I had been in there enough to know. And I, I just flat out said, you cannot say this anymore. What you are doing is demonstrating that you don't love him. Your word and your deed are at odds with one another right now because you are not loving as God says we are to love. You are loving in a very selfish pursuit of something else. You don't love him. You love yourself. That's why I don't get a lot of counseling. (laughs) But she had to hear it. I mean, it's sad. I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to make light of that. It's, it's, it's unfortunate that that is most of us struggling in relationship because we demand to be loved, but we struggle loving. God's love for us is productive. What he says is what he does. It accomplishes something. It is active. It, 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 it does something on our behalf. It produces life. It produces sacrifice that satisfies his wrath. It moves him. God sent his son. You listen, on, 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 in the world today, Adam Levine sitting in that chair on The Voice. I know this is another terrible, silly illustration. Little girls, I don't know, maybe they're women. I, uh, girls standing in, in the audience, we love you, Adam! No, you don't. You desire him. You don't love him. You desire him and desire to be desired by him. I love you too, he says. That makes me want to vomit every time. It's such a sick, weak, powerless imitation. God's love is proactive. It is productive. God's love for us is beneficial. I couldn't come up with another. There is a P word for this one, but I couldn't come up with P words for the other, so I just stopped. But God's love for us is beneficial. It's good for the one that receives it. In fact, as you'll see this play out in the the next two, it's the good of the, the object that's loved. That's the point. When we say we're doing something out of love, when it's really self-serving, that's not really love. Well, it's love. But it's the love of self, not the love of someone else. God's love for us is beneficial to us. His love met us at the point of our deepest need and it worked out our greatest good. You and I were dead. We were bound in the course of this world, bound to follow the course of the prince of the power of the air, running after the passions of our flesh. By nature, we were children of wrath, who only deserved its condemnation. (laughs) His justified wrath against us was all we could earn. And yet here he comes. Our greatest point of need to give us our greatest good. 
but God, being rich in mercy, loved us, made us alive, and has seated us in the heavenly realms with Christ. Not will, not might, has, as if it's already occurred. He has made you alive in Christ. His love for you is beneficial to you. His love for you is your greatest good, meeting you at your greatest point of need. This is His love. And this love, while it's beneficial to us, it cost Him dearly. Because love, as God loves, is also sacrificial. It's selfless. It costs to love someone like God has loved us. He sent His Son that He might be a propitiation, He says in verse 10. What's a propitiation? We don't, it's not like we fling that word around. Like we, some of us might walk around looking for a reason to use that word, right? He's a propitiation for our sins. And somebody says, well, what is that? Oh, I don't know. It says it. It's a satisfaction. It's, a, it's the atoning sacrifice. It's the thing that makes you able to stand in His presence. It's the covering. It's the, it's the meeting of the debt you owe God. It's the wiping away of your sin debt against Him. He has satisfied it through the the perfect life, the sacrificial death, and the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. You will never have to walk in His wrath. You will only ever be the object of His love. But it cost Him to do so. The God who said, let there be light. It's the same God who watched His Son die. It's the same God who hung on that cross. It's the same God who Dave read about earlier that he who knew no sin became sin. This cost. But his love is able to meet it. It is able to satisfy it. It's able to accomplish it. His love is proactive, it's productive, it's beneficial, it's sacrificial. If we could sum it up in one, God's love for us is generous. Oh, He has so much. He owns everything. Everything belongs to Him. Everything is under Him. But He doesn't love us out of the abundance of all that stuff. He sends His one and only Son. You know generosity when you recognize the depth of the sacrifice. You know, Jesus sitting across from the temple watching all these rich folks go by. And he calls them out because they're given all these large sums of money, feeling really good about themselves. And he says, ah, they're giving out of their abundance. And he calls out the widow and commends the widow. Because she gives all she has. Even though it seems insignificant in contrast to the gifts of these rich folks. One little penny. But she held nothing back. That's a picture of the generous nature of God. 
He didn't sit up in heaven. And I hope, th- I hope they figure out a way. Hope, hope, hope they can make it up. I'd like for them to be okay. Hey, hey, if you guys figure out you need something, let, let, let me know. If I can help you in any way, I'm here. No. He sent his one and only son that we might live through him. That he might be a propitiation for our sin. God has loved you generously. He has loved you sacrificially. He has loved you beneficially. He has loved you productively and proactively. He has proven his love in Jesus. And so let me just bring us back to that main point. Because Jesus has come, God's people can daily live with this assurance. We are loved by God. And there is nothing in this world, in this life, nothing in death, no angel or demon, no power or principality, nothing that can separate us from this love that's in Christ Jesus. So so, so here we are in this Advent season, looking back on the fact that Jesus has come, (laughs) expectantly waiting for his return. As we wait, I would just encourage you to remember, you are loved. Not because tomorrow goes well, not because you get the right presents under the tree, not because your car doesn't break down or because you get the raise you're looking for in the new year. God loves you. That's settled once and for all because Jesus has come. God loves you. We never have to doubt it. And we can look forward to hope with walking in the reality of it when he returns. But as we wait, let me, let me just encourage you not just to think of it for yourself. Because that's not the purpose for which John wrote this letter. That's not the purpose for which John wrote these particular words. In fact, you can see it in the whole passage. If, if we had read the whole passage, it would even be clearer. But I do think it's clear. Let us love one Another. Because Jesus has come, God's people can live daily with this assurance. This assurance we are loved by God. And we can love like God. It's not a prerequisite. It's not a prerequisite to love one another like God so that we can receive his love. It is the consequence or the fruit of is the result of having been loved, the, the very natural outflow of us having been loved this selflessly is to love this selflessly, this proactively, this productively, this beneficially, this sacrificially, this generously. To, to love, not because someone we know deserves it, but because that's who God has made us. To, to love, not in word, but in word and deed. To To love in a way that is beneficial to the, to the person who's receiving it. To love, no matter what the cost. Because you've been given everything you need for life and godliness. You can pay from his account. You'll never give up so much that God can't continue to fill you with his love. 
we can love one another this generously. And, and I would suggest that this speaks not just to a local congregation. I would say every one of your Christian friends, every one of your brothers and sisters in Christ that you come into contact with, love this way. Seek to be this loving. But if it's not happening in the local church, I mean, how else do we see it expressed? Love one another. For love is from God. If we love, it's because we know God and we've been loved by God. Let me just close with this this warning. I think it's evident in the text. The promise of this passage and the ability to love love like God is limited to God's people, to the beloved. That's who John addresses, beloved. There are a lot of people who, who sit in church all their lives who make sure that they come and are in church, especially Christmas and Easter. But who have no ability to love like God loves. In fact, this kind of love is foreign to them. And I don't know if there's anybody here that this might apply to. But as I sat and read and prayed and studied again this morning and thought, through this, I felt compelled that it needed to be said. If this love isn't evident in the people in this church, let me, let me start first by a little self-examination. If this love sounds foreign to you, you've never loved anyone this way, and all of a sudden you're able to see it, respond to the Holy Spirit who's showing you. Look at Jesus, receive his love and his life so that you can love like this. But if this love, if this love isn't evident in the one another's that make up this church, let me encourage you, in love, call that person to Christ. Speak truth. Give them the love that John has given you. This love is from God. Love one another with it. Let's not walk in shadows anymore. Let's not be a people who settle for poor, weak, pitiful imitations. Let's be a people who rest in, who live in, who express the love that God has loved us with. Let's pray.